If you're just jumping in with us, I know we've got a lot of guests here for the baptisms today, uh, let me catch you up on kind of the story of Jonah, just in case you're not super familiar with it. Uh, in chapter one, right, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the prophet, uh, calling him to go to Nineveh, right, the, the capital city of Assyria, uh, a, a hated enemy of the Israelites. Prophet of Israel, go to that capital city and preach God's message to the people. And Jonah, that great prophet of God, runs in the opposite direction. He he absolutely rejects God's word. He runs from God's word. He runs from God's presence. He buys a one-way ticket to Tarshish, right, which is the farthest possible destination in the known world he can get to in the opposite direction of Nineveh. He, He runs from God, yet God pursues Jonah. God sends a great storm around the boat that he jumps on and, and threatens, that threatens to destroy the ship and, and everyone who's on board, all these other pagan sailors who happen to be on that ship. And, and after trying everything that they possibly could, this group of compassionate pagan sailors reluctantly kind of agree to Jonah's wishes and they reluctantly toss the apathetic prophet into the sea. And immediately the storm ceases, the sea grows calm. Then then God sends a great fish that swallows Jonah. And in the belly of the fish, chapter 2, Jonah continues just this downward descent uh, to the very bottom of the sea, in the belly of this great fish. And Jonah, there, he prays. He cries out to God out of his distress. And, And he encounters God's grace as he remembers who God is and what God has done provide a way for his people to to come and worship him. And Jonah commits himself again to following the Lord and and saying in verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord. And then God speaks to the fish and the fish vomits Jonah out onto dry land. Now Jonah has this kind of encounter with grace, but he's not fully transformed. He's still hanging on to a lot of self-righteousness a lot of judgmentalness towards those who are not like him, uh, as we will continue to see as we work our way through the rest of the book. But that's where we pick things up in Jonah chapter 3, 1 through 10, where we get to see more of God's heart toward wayward sinners. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles if you're not already there, uh, Jonah 3, 1 through 10, and, and stand with me, if you would, for the reading of God's Word. Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go simply, uh, uh, go, go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, uh, robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through, through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but... Let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, 
God relented of the disaster that he had said that he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your heart is not to cast us aside and be done with us, even though in our sin that's what we deserve, but that your heart is to move toward us in our sin and to extend to us mercy. Help us to see your heart, to be gripped by it today, to embrace it with with all of who we are. We pray in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. You may have a seat. We're we're getting a deeper look at, at God's heart toward wayward sinners as we see God's heart toward Jonah, God's heart toward Nineveh. And and we get a glimpse of how we are invited to respond to his heart toward us. First, we see God's heart toward Jonah. Right away, if if we're attentive, we get get to see God's heart toward Jonah. As the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, right? Key words there, second time, the second time. It's subtle, but, but this is God's heart of mercy on display. Jonah has absolutely blown it. I mean, he's absolutely blown it in every way. God told him to go to Nineveh, preach to the people there, and Jonah completely rejected God, rejected his command. He ran, he rebelled against God, completely turned his back on God. Right? Jonah deserved wrath and judgment. Jonah deserved to die in the storm that God sent on the ship. He deserved, as he's setting out there adrift at sea, to just drown. He deserved, as he's swallowed by a great fish, to, to be digested uh, fish food, fully digested, right? Uh, he, he deserves judgment for his sin, but God, all the way through, continuously pursues Jonah, and even, even as we'll move forward in chapter 4, and, and Jonah reacts really badly to what happens here in chapter 3, God will continue to pursue Jonah with mercy, with grace. He... he God used the severe mercy of the storm and the fish to teach Jonah about about his grace. And here God extends grace as he comes to Jonah a second time with the exact same command, essentially. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. God's heart is to, to give wayward sinners like Jonah second chances and third chances. And, and fourth chances, right? The pages of the Bible are filled with accounts of God giving second chances to sinful people. Let me point out one today. Think about Peter, the apostle, disciple of Jesus. Peter, I mean, he, he one of my favorites. I, I love Peter in so many ways. Jesus told Peter on the day, the night that he was betrayed, that Peter, you're going to deny me three times. And what's Peter's response when Jesus says that? No way. Not me, Jesus, right? I'm with you. I, I, will, I will die with you. I will never, ever deny you. And what does Peter do? Denies Jesus three times. He, he, he is in such great fear in the moment of those denials that, that even when a, a girl who's likely about 12 or 13 years old points him out as one of Jesus' followers, he denies that he knows Jesus to this young girl. The most crucial moment, Peter 
denied Jesus. He turned his back on Jesus. I don't think sometimes in the church we really get a full grasp of, of kind of the level of, of, of what that actually means, of the level of that sin. But, but let me try to help us understand today, right? ISIS uh, still exists uh, and, and is still martyring and murdering Christians for their faith, right? And let's just say that ISIS got a hold of, of a pastor that we, that we knew, and had that pastor on international TV saying, deny Jesus or we're going to kill you. And that pastor in that moment, out of great fear, is like, I deny Jesus, right? I, I, I don't know him, right? Allah's God, not Jesus, to save his own neck. He does that. No, we would never let that pastor get behind a pulpit and preach again. Never. We would never let that happen again. But that's essentially what Peter did. Same sin. Actually, what Peter did was actually worse. He not only denied Jesus to save his own neck, but he denied Jesus in front of Jesus when Jesus was about to be crucified. In Luke's account, in Luke's gospel account, it says that at the moment of that third denial, at the moment that the rooster crows, and Peter remembers what Jesus had told him, at that moment it says that the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Can you imagine Peter's just brokenness at that moment? As the Lord's eyes lock onto his but what did Jesus do with Peter? What did Jesus do with Peter after the resurrection? Does Jesus come for Peter with vengeance? Does he just rub Peter's nose in it and cast him aside? No. When, when Jesus appears, first the, the women followers of Jesus are the first ones who see Jesus. And, and, and Jesus tells them, hey, go tell my disciples and Peter, then I'm going to meet them in Galilee. In Mark's gospel, he, it says that Jesus singles out Peter. Why? Because Peter, after what he did, had to think, if, if Jesus just says, I'm going to go meet my disciples, I'm not one of them anymore. I've forfeited my right to that. I, I, he's not, that doesn't mean me. But in Mark's account, it says that he says, I'm going to meet my disciples, tell my disciples and Peter and I'm going to meet them in Galilee. And in John 21, you see Jesus and Peter reuniting. And how does Jesus react? What does he do? He cooks him breakfast on the beach. And he asks him three times, three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Three times, three times Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus says to him, feed my sheep. Preach. The rock that he's going to build his church on. That's restoration. That's a second chance. That's the heart of God towards sinners in their sin to move toward them, to offer forgiveness and grace 
and to make reconciliation and restoration possible. That's God's heart here toward Jonah. And it's also his heart toward you. As Jonah somewhat, somewhat obeys and goes to preach God's message to Nineveh, we also get to see God's heart toward Nineveh. And Jonah seems to rather half-heartedly obey at best the second time, right? We're told Nineveh is this huge city. It's three days' journey to get from one side of the city to the other. And Jonah just only bothers to go a third of the way into the city. He doesn't go all throughout it, just a day's journey in, stops, and preaches his sermon. His sermon, which is five words in the original Hebrew. Five words. It translated to English, it, it, it's this. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Let's pray, right? Jonah is pretty excited, actually, to proclaim God's wrath against that great city towards its sin. And we'll see more about his excitement about that next week. But he's hoping, Jonah's hoping for destruction. He's hoping that the people of Nineveh will reject God's message and that God will just smoke them. He's hoping for that. But in contrast to Jonah's heart, we're meant to see God's heart toward Nineveh. God's heart toward Nineveh can be seen in the lengths that he's gone to just to get his prophet there to proclaim this message. Nineveh is repeatedly called throughout the book that that great city, but it really isn't that great. It's, it's not that great. We, we've talked about in previous weeks how the capital of the Assyrian Empire, Nineveh, right, which was the most cruel and violent empire of the day. I mean, these people invented ways to torture and just crush people. They pose a very real threat at this moment to Israel, and in the future it won't be just a real threat. It would be an actual threat um, uh, fulfilled. It was a place of great sin and wickedness. It's a place opposed to God in every way. Yet God has set his will to bring his prophet to that city to proclaim his message to it. God cares for that great city because there are people there. And, and God cares for people. He cares even for people who don't care for him. He cares. Again, God's heart is to draw near toward wayward sinners to make possible reconciliation and restoration. And God cares for people holistically. Human beings, after all, are, are whole persons comprised of a body and a soul. A body and a soul. Whole persons. Kind of two parts, if you will, that are, are united together. Body and soul. We have a tendency as human beings to kind of overvalue either the body or the soul at the neglect and expense of the other. In a variety of ways, historically, we, we do this in a lot of different ways. But, but God cares for us holistically, body and soul. Probably the greater struggle in our evangelical kind of Christian world is to only see people as souls that need to be one for heaven. They're only souls that need to be one for heaven. We're focused on the soul. But people are whole persons comprised of bodies and souls. And God cares for the whole person. God cares about human suffering and oppression. He cares about poverty and sickness. And Jesus comes not only preaching when he comes in his ministry. He comes not only preaching the good news of his kingdom. 
But he comes bringing a foretaste of his kingdom as he heals and he feeds and he casts out demons. His heart is for feeding the hungry, giving drink to the thirsty, welcoming the stranger, the foreigner, clothing the poor, caring for the sick, visiting the imprisoned. Don't believe me? Go read Matthew 25, 31 through 46. The sheep and the goats. When he'll say, you're, you, he welcomes them in because, hey, when you, you visited me when I was in prison, you cared for me when I was sick. When, when do we do that, Lord? Whatever you did to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You did it for me. Jesus shows us that his heart is not just for right doctrine, but also for right practice. Right doctrine matters, but so does right practice. They go together, orthodoxy and orthopraxy. They go together. And right practice involves caring for physical needs along with the deeper spiritual need. God's heart for sinful cities is seen elsewhere in the Bible in a number of places. One example being Jeremiah 29. Years after the time of Jonah, God gave the same call to other believers to seek the common good of a sinful pagan city that wasn't just a threat, but had already done violence to the people of Israel. Uh, This time it was the city of Babylon. And the Babylonians had invaded and sacked Jerusalem and carried off many of the people from Jerusalem into exile to Babylon. And the Babylonians wanted to just assimilate the the Jewish people into their city and their culture. And the Jews thought our only option apart from assimilation is to just stay removed from the city, have nothing to do with that big, bad, wicked city, just refuse to associate with it in any way so we can keep our distinctiveness as God's people. But God spoke there, Jeremiah 29, through the prophet Jeremiah, about a third option. Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. God's heart was to send his people as exiles to a city and a people vehemently opposed to him to seek their common good, to pray for the city, the city that has just wrecked their lives, to love that city, not just in word, but in deed to see their own good tied to the good of the city that they find themselves in. The New Testament kind of continues this understanding. You you see Peter and James and their epistles kind of writing and and referring to Christians as exiles. Christian, you're an exile. The New Testament tells us, it tells you, that, that you are not to live as a citizen of this world but as a citizen of the heavenly Jerusalem that is to come. As exile. You live as an exile here in this place right now. And as exiles, we are to pray for and seek the well-being and the good of the earthly cities that we find ourselves in. God cares for the physical 
and the spiritual. He cares for people holistically. And he cares for people who are opposed to him, rebelling against him, rejecting him holistically. We're seeing here this mysterious connection between God's wrath and his mercy. God's perfect holiness demands that sinfulness be judged and punished. That it suffer God's just wrath. It must. And Nineveh is a wicked city filled with wicked, sinful people. They deserve God's wrath. They don't even deserve the warning. Hey, 40 days and you're done. You're toast. They deserve God's wrath immediately with no warning. But here is the wonderful mystery of God's mercy. Holiness and sinfulness are mutually exclusive. Right, think about it. Yet the purer the heart, the more horrified at the evil of your neighbors being robbed you will be. And the more corrupt your heart, the less affected by the evils around you you will be. So it makes sense that the purer the heart, the more naturally the heart will be drawn out to help and to protect and to comfort and to relieve. While the corrupt heart just sits there indifferent. This comes from Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, where he says, So with Christ, his holiness finds evil revolting, more revolting than any of us ever could feel. But it is that very holiness that also draws his heart out to help and relieve and protect and comfort. In other words, it's actually God's perfect holiness and justice that moves him to extend love and care and compassion and mercy to wayward sinners like you and me. It seems maybe a little confusing when you hear that at first, but when you think about it, it begins to make perfect sense. Because listen, folks, if, if our culture's right and there is no right or wrong, it's all social construct and you determine what's right and wrong for you and it doesn't matter, then how can there be justice? But that's the oxymoron of our culture. There's no right and wrong. Don't deny yourself. Embrace anything that you feel you are or you should be or you want to do. But yet, here's how you should respond to these issues of justice in our world. Do you see the contradiction there? There is no right or wrong. How can there be justice? How can it be right to care and to show mercy to those who are oppressed and those who are suffering? God's justice and his mercy are intertwined. They're together. His justice seems to propel his mercy, actually. Not half-heartedly or partially, but holistically. But God relates to his justice and his mercy very differently. Yes, God is perfectly and unswervingly just, but he delights. He delights to show mercy. It's his joy the joy of his heart to show mercy. And that's what he does with the Ninevites. Shockingly, they repent and believe, even with such a short and half-hearted sermon. And God relents. He delights to show mercy. And he doesn't bring the disaster that he said he would bring. This isn't just God's heart for Nineveh or cities in general, but it's also God's heart toward you. And he's inviting and even illustrating what it looks like to respond. As we see this, this notion of, of responding to God's heart toward you. How do we respond? It's the same response, no matter who you are. Repentance and faith. 
repentance and faith. That's the response of the Ninevites to God's word proclaimed to them through Jonah. They don't simply offer lip service and say, we believe. We ascribe to a certain set of, of, of facts and details. And that's it. No, they repent. The king of Nineveh calls for repentance. Verse 8, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in, in his hand. Right? It's, a, it's a social reform that's taking place here in the city. There is a turning from their sins, repentance and faith. Really, you could say that the theme of this chapter in many ways is repentance. What does it mean to believe God? It, it isn't simply asserting to a, a collection of facts and details, but it involves turning your life from one direction to the other. That's what the word repent really literally means. It's a 180, 180-degree turn. Your life is heading this way, living for yourself, living for your sin, and you meet Jesus and you turn, right? And you live for him, and you embrace him, and he becomes your heartbeat. He becomes what you live for. Repentance always involves confession, contrition, and change. And you see that here in the text. There's an acknowledgement here of the evil ways, of their evil ways that the people have lived. It calls their ways evil. That's confession. I have sin in my life, and I'm calling it what it is. It's sin. It's rebellion against God. I'm confessing that. But then they put on sackcloth and ashes and they engage in fasting. What are they doing? It's, they're displaying remorse and brokenness from their sin. It's contrition. It's like, uh, yes, I'm, uh, yeah, some people acknowledge, yeah, sinned, but I don't care. I'm just going to do it some more. It's being broken. I hate my sin. I hate that I am drawn to that. And I, I want to be different. I want to see that sin put to death. Contrition. And then they turn from their evil way. Change. Not perfect change. Right? History tells us that maybe there wasn't real repentance here because the Assyrians later do invade Israel. Hard to know because we see great revivals in our own history that last for a time and then they die out and they're forgotten about. So maybe it was a real revival, a real repentance and faith that took place here, but then a generation passes and it's lost. Who knows? But they turn from their evil, they, they repent, they believe, repentance and faith. The reality is that your sins deserve God's wrath. But the reality is that Jesus moves toward you in your sin to deal with your sin and to offer you grace and restored relationship with God. And the only response to that is repentance and faith, enjoying his grace. If you don't know Christ today, if you're not a Christian, his invitation for you today is to see both his holiness and his mercy and to respond with repentance and faith, trusting Christ. But if you are a Christian, it's the same response that God invites you into today. God saves and he sins. He sent his prophet to Nineveh, he sends you, Christian, he sends every Christian to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. He sends you. And if you're like me, there's times where you have not lived up to that call. And so the invitation is to see God's heart for this city too, for Bloomington, his heart for this city. Do you share his heart for your city? 
Or is your heart more like Jonah toward your city? Jesus invites you to consider his heart toward you, his heart toward Bloomington, and to respond with repentance and faith and to go and share Christ with others. The only way anyone can respond is if God empowers their response. Jonah's half-hearted mission wasn't the reason the Ninevites repented. Uh, Jonah didn't inspire the king to put on sackcloth and ashes and call for a fast. It was the power of God that did that. And so it is with you. Only the Holy Spirit can move you to repentance and faith as you consider the heart of Jesus toward you. Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, responded to the Father's call to go to step out of heaven and into this world of sin and suffering. And Jesus, with great joy, he, he moved toward wayward sinners to, to meet both their physical and spiritual needs. The perfect holiness and justice of Jesus moved him to extend mercy. So he lived the sinless life that we never could in our place. And then he died the death that we deserve to pay for our sins in full, suffering God's justice in our place once and for all. And he was raised on the third day to display his victory over Satan, sin, and death. And that by the power and the work of the Holy Spirit, you might be invited to experience his mercy and grace if you would respond with repentance and faith. Turning from your sin and trusting that his work has accomplished your rescue. It is the delight of Jesus' heart to show mercy to wayward sinners like Jonah and the Ninevites, and you and me. Jesus has done everything required to turn God's wrath to grace for you. How will you respond? How are you, will you respond? May his heart toward you draw your heart toward him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to, to see not only your, your perfect holiness but, and your wrath towards sin, but also your mercy today. Enable us to see your heart toward us in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ, who pursued us in rebellion, in our rebellion against you, who came to suffer your just wrath for our sin in our place, who delights to extend to us mercy and grace. By your Holy Spirit, enable us to see your heart towards sinners like us and move us to repent and believe. Move us to share your heart for our city and to care for people holistically as you care for us. Help us to both enjoy and spread your grace. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.